The theme of Proverbs is found right at the beginning, chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Its goal is to describe and instill wisdom in God's people, a wisdom that is founded in the fear of the Lord and that works out covenant life in the practical details of everyday situations and relationships. Proverbs is the prime example of wisdom literature. In the Old Testament, the others being Job, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, together with the wisdom psalms. So you'll find some psalms like 112, blessed are those whose fear is in the Lord. That sort of psalm is also part of the wisdom literature. And James in the New Testament is generally counted as a wisdom book, as are parts of Jesus' teaching. So wisdom is throughout the scripture, the canon of scripture. The nature of Proverbs shows why we as Christians, even though we don't live in the theocracy established by the Mosaic Covenant, should still find in this book wisdom for our lives. God gave the covenant, the original covenant, to his people out of grace, and his aim was to restore human life to its proper functioning within the specific context of their theocracy in Israel. In the same way, though, the Christian message is God's gracious way, again, of restoring human life for all kinds of people fulfilling the promises made to the patriarchs. Both situations express the same grace of God and both have the goal of restoring the image of God in humanity. And further, many of the Proverbs make use of the ways of wise observations of God's world, which is the same world that we Christians live in today. So finally, um, just on this note, the Proverbs make use of the ways of wise observations of God's world which is the same world that we Christians live in today. So there's no surprise that New Testament authors also readily make use of individual proverbs, which in its own way sets the pattern for Christians of all ages. So the proverbs apply to us. Right, here we go on this morning's readings. So we started in the video with Proverbs 6, excuse me, 6 and 16. And it's worth seeing these verses as context. They didn't specifically speak of friendship, But they tell us something of the heart of God. And as we read them, it's worth asking ourselves, where do I sit with these? And by the way, I should say before reading that the six things the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to him, that does not imply two categories. It's a form of rhetoric used in Hebrew writings that emphasizes the nature and the number of the matters listed. So there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. He write, the, the author writes, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. There's enough there for seven sermons. I won't go there, but just to say how easy it is to absolve ourselves of any wrongdoing here when we hear that. I'm all right, Jack. I'm not on that sort of scale. Hopefully we don't do these things, but it is really easy to slip towards them. And we read them this morning as a counterpoise. So if we live by the word of God, we won't go near them. And in particular, we're going to look at friendship as a way of being part of God's work and God's plan. The American writer of the 19th century, Ralph Waldo Emerson describes a friend as the masterpiece of nature. The masterpiece of nature. Is there anything more wonderful in this world than friendship? The great C.S. Lewis, writing 
80 years later, identifies friendship as one of the four defining concepts of love in Greek philosophy. In his book, The Four Loves, he calls it philia, noting that this is the least biological, he says, the least biological, organic, instinctive, gregarious, and necessary of loves. And he explains that to the classical and medieval worlds, it's seen as a higher level love because it's freely chosen. I choose you as friend. Jesus in John 15 famously says to his disciples, I no longer call you servants because the servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. The sense of being chosen at this moment as friends of Jesus is palpable. The very idea that we can be friends of the Savior. The friendship is freely given and suggests incredible privileges to come. As friends, we can anticipate that Jesus will want to spend time with us. We are expected to share with us his deepest thoughts and his most beautiful knowledge. And we will return to this at the end, as this morning we will see not only the power and beauty of friendships and why we should care for them and value them, but also what this means for us and Jesus himself. So, who is our friend? I wonder how you decide on who your friends actually are. How do you choose who your friends are? How many do you have? Do you put them into categories? Do you have an inner circle of friends? Do you have multiple layers? Do friends get promoted and relegated between those layers? And if so, do you do that consciously? And on what basis? If a friend doesn't reciprocate or proves inconstant by your own standards, do you exclude them? And in which case, is there ever possible redemption for them? Can they become friends again? Or maybe friendships are just a very difficult space for you. You may even believe that you have no friends. Relationships of all kinds are both complex and subjective, which means that context and circumstance matter a great deal. I remember in the early days of getting to know my wife, Claire, she told me she had only five friends, which astonished me at the time, because I thought I had loads. And she said, and, and it wasn't because, by the way, she wasn't social. It's just that she valued friendships so highly, and she invested so much in each of her friendships that she only had room in her life for a handful. Meanwhile, at various stages of our children's growth, I was amazed when they explained to me the concept of friendship groups which seemed to be more like cliques, where if you were in that group, then all of the group had to be your friends, and others known to that group couldn't be your... Sorry, not in that group, couldn't be your friends, unless you joined a group where they were. So it seemed to me to be a complex Venn diagram that preyed on their minds and on their insecurities, rather than bringing life. And I reflected that adults are not immune to that thinking either. Proverbs teaches us that we should choose well. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, we read in 1824, which suggests that a friendship is such an important thing that if we cannot rely on the person in question, it can literally ruin us. This suggests I should avoid placing my energies and my trust in someone who either doesn't reciprocate or hasn't the same idea of reliability. The second couplet of the same verse, however, holds out for us the pot of gold. There is a friend, the writer says, who sticks closer than a brother. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother or sister. The implication here is that a true friend is always there for us. I've come to define my friends, uh, my true friends, as people who I could call in the middle of the night if I needed them. 
and with any question on my heart, and that the reciprocal is true as well. They could call me. That's my definition. You'll have yours. What do they bring us? What do friends bring us? Proverbs speaks of the gifts that come from true friendship. <clears throat> First, Proverbs says there is wisdom, 1320. Walk with the wise and become wise. If our friends are wise people, we will naturally become wise ourselves. I often see wisdom spread in groups or teams. When there are wise, thoughtful people at the center, others tend to take their lead. Choose friends who are wise, the scripture says, and you will grow fast in wisdom. But then in thir- later in 1320, the verse continues, for a companion of fools suffers harm. A companion of fools suffers harm. So friends should be protection from harm. Who do we spend time with? We shouldn't hang out with a bad crowd. The people we spend time with are ultimately the people we tend to become like. It's possible to stand firm against those who don't believe what we believe or don't value what we value, but it takes energy and commitment. I find this of special relevance to people landing in a new place, a college, a university, a place of work. Some of you this morning will be new in Winchester or you'll recently have taken on a new job. A new community, city or country. It's critical to distinguish between who I'm connecting with, where they influence me and I influence them, and who is giving me strength and restoration. Connection and influence can come in many ways with Instagram, Twitter, iMessage, WhatsApp, so many means available to us, but still the deepest connections come in person. So who commands my focus, my time, my energy? Where am I putting that? I can be out there, of course, with the best of intentions carrying the light and living the mission that the Father has given me. And hopefully I find that energizing in itself. But in reality, it can also be exhausting. And it's great that we spend time with people who don't believe in Jesus, because how else will they meet him? But we need our true friends to be our place of restoration and rebuild, our Rivendell for the token fans and says. So Proverbs suggests that Friends should protect us from harm and not hide away when, um, and not hide away uh, when, when, other, when um, things get difficult. So let me explain that. There was a moment in my life when I might have chosen a wrong path. Four friends of mine stepped in without hesitation and stopped me. And it was a very significant move. And they were even prepared to put the friendship, our friendship at risk itself. It took a lot of courage and I'm very grateful to them to this day. It was pure protection. They were then and remain to this day real friends. Compare that with a so-called friend who actually doesn't care what happens to you. A person might see you going down a wrong path or a dangerous path, but hasn't the courage or the inclination to take action. That's not a true friend. And this is what the writer means in Proverbs 27 verses 5 and 6. We just heard it. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So what the writer is saying here is a friend doesn't hide their love away. They take action. A kiss means nothing in this case. It's easy to offer a kiss without any good intention for the person. Judas being the prime example. Friendship is not about show. It's about action. So three gifts, the scripture says. Wisdom protection and action.
come from true friendships. How to live them. How do we live out our friendships? Four principles that show I'm a true friend. Chapter 17, a friend loves at all times. A friend loves at all times. Now, this sounds totally reasonable, totally intuitive. That is until we feel let down by a friend or that their behavior has gone too far or we feel personally hurt. And this can happen in even the best of friendships. You've probably all experienced that. And the key is to love, love, and love again. Forgive and clear away anything that might get between you. You have to go after the friendship to keep it alive. This means treating it as important and sacred. A friend loves at all times. Second principle, friends travel together over time. Now, it's not written in Scripture, but it's certainly proved. Right? So when Jesus declares to his disciples that they are friends, we know that they journey together for some time, two, three years. This was the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and shortly before he would take the cross, when he says this, and there was for sure a sense of acknowledgement here that they traveled a great deal and been through a lot together. Just recently, Claire and I were at a retreat with our great friends, John and Stacey Eldridge, and a number of other friends from this church and elsewhere. And when we walked in, my closest friend in the world, a man called Finton uh, from Dublin, was there already. And we were catching up, and we suddenly realized that we've been friends for 50 years. <laughs> and we also realized it was longer than any two people in the room had known each other. Even John and Stacey Eldridge hadn't known each other for 50 years. So it's a hundred people in the room were saying, yep, 50 years of friendship. Now, Fenton and I would have called each other friend at the age of 10, but this friendship also has the beauty of longevity. And we both know that it would take something completely extraordinary to break that friendship now. In fact, it just won't happen. Travel together over time. There is absolutely nothing like it. Third principle, friends invest in and receive from one another. Now, there'll be times in a friendship we sort of touched on it, where we need to invest. But other times when it'll be our turn to receive. And what I think marks out friendship is that we don't count the cost. We don't count the cost of investing. And more often than not, we find that in giving, we receive and vice versa. So when Jesus washed the feet of his friends, Peter felt that he couldn't receive that. But Jesus gave it to him out of friendship. Said, if I don't do this, you're not for me. And Peter went on to receive it fully. So that's the third principle we invest in and receive from one another. And finally, friends prioritize their relationship. We prioritize our friendship. This means we have to set things aside when our friends need us. This means we may need to put our plans and sometimes even ourselves in second place. When Lazarus was sick, they sent for Jesus and he came. One of the things I treasure most is that I can always get hold of my close friends. I always know that if I need them, they'll answer. They'll always come back to me. So here we go, four principles, right? Love, journey, invest, and prioritize. And if we live like that, then building friendships of depth and authenticity will make our community here in Christchurch flourish at a whole new level. Do we build friendships in this way? And finally, just a note on the dangers that come with friendships. I don't want to dwell on this, but the enemy seeks to corrupt all good things. So most true friendships have gone beyond these things, but few friendships are fully immune, and all of them 
at emerging stage are susceptible. So when Lewis speaks of philia, he identifies three traps. The first he calls cliquiness. And I think we all get that, right? So this is where we get overprotective of a friendship or allow only a few very select people into our company and we start to create something exclusive. And that starts to creep towards the haughty eyes, right? And the conflict of the community back in chapter six. So beware cliquiness. The second he calls um, anti-authoritarianism. Strange word, but what he, what he means here is that you can begin to use a friendship as an alliance against others, or particularly against a rightful authority. So, for example, a dreadful example would be in the church where two people begin to form an axis against the leadership of the church. So beware of that. And the third is pride. Somehow I'm feeding my ego because of this friendship, this social or other external value that this friend gives me. My friend might be someone in the public eye, or he's famous or highly renowned for some reason. Nothing wrong with having that person as a friend, of course. But if it becomes about me and about how good it makes me feel, or somehow about using this person for my gain, then I've gone badly wrong. So Proverbs tells us, then, of the gifts, principles, and dangers of friendship. Um, And I would add one more discipline here before we close, and it's a lifesaver, which uh, I call giving it all back to God. So no matter how beautiful our friendships are and how significant they are, then at the end of the day, I should still give everything and everyone back to God, including my friends. So that means that as I close my eyes, I'm not responsible for my friends, and I'm not indispensable to them. I'm grateful for them and for the friendships, but in the end, it all belongs to God. They belong to God. I belong to God. So let's close as we began looking at Jesus himself. Because absolutely everything we said applies to our friendship with him. He is the greatest of friends. As the beautiful hymn has it, but oh my friend, my friend indeed, who at my need his life did spend. Greater love has no one, he taught, than to lay down their life for their friend. He did that, of course, as we know, for you and for me. Which means he is already and always will be the greatest friend we'll ever have. And he's also the perfect model for our greatest friendships in life. But not only that, the incredibly beautiful thing is that Jesus is also there for us day to day. And this is really important to know. He is fully available, brilliantly empathetic, wise, fun, understanding. We can laugh with him, smile with him, talk with him, reason with him at any time and in any place. What a gift is that? It's the kind of informal closeness that, of course, takes us back to our birthright because in the Garden of Eden, before the fall, right, Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the cool of the evening. And we can have that friendship again, simply talking like friends do. See, we can have that friendship again because... They surrendered it, they surrendered the birthright because they followed the temptation of the enemy and they lost Eden for us all. And so we all think we can't have that anymore. But the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost, Luke 19, verse 10. So Jesus won back that right for us. This is really important, friends. We think we've lost the right to intimacy with Jesus. He won it back for us on the cross. 
So when he took the cross and died for us, it wasn't just about setting us right with the Father, which of course it was, but it also opened up the gate to a closeness with him on a daily basis. Once again, you and I can walk with him as a friend, the greatest friend of all. Surely that is the greatest news that I could possibly give you this morning. Yeah? Amen.